I'm Linda Dorsina Fori. I'm a mom, a mother, <laughs> but I'm a state senator for the first Suffolk district. I'm Bill Forey. I'm a dad. Um, I'm an editor and a reporter with the reporter newspapers, and I'm Linda's husband. Okay, can I do mine again? Yeah, Did I say totally. a wife? I didn't say a wife, right? I said a mom and a mother. Yeah, okay, no, I, it's no, same, no, no. but you it's can... the same thing. Okay, here we go again. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is going to be a nightmare. No, it's not. I'm 30 kidding. minutes. Maybe. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Next week on the Strong. Okay. From WGBH in Boston, I'm Adam Riley, and this is The Scrum. Each week on The Scrum, we talk about media and politics. This week, we're focusing on a Boston couple that have their feet in both those worlds. Bill Forey is an editor and reporter at the Dorchester Reporter, the Boston Irish Reporter, and the Boston Haitian Reporter. Linda Dorsina Forey represents the 1st Suffolk District, which includes South Boston, Dorchester, and Mattapan. And she's a political trailblazer. She's the first woman and first person of color to represent the first Suffolk, which over the years was traditionally represented by old school Irish politicians, with Bill Bulger being kind of the classic example. How are you doing? Hi. Good. Come on in. Bill's on his way. Nice to see you. I talked with the Forries the Saturday after Christmas at their home in Dorchester on Richmond Street. Thank you. Yeah. So this is where Bill grew up. Isn't this funny? It's really? his childhood home, yeah. Oh, wow. We actually bought They live in a big old Victorian, it's 125 years old. It's the same house Bill Forey grew up in. Absolutely beautiful. The Christmas tree was in the corner. The presents were neatly stacked underneath. This is Connor. Connor, you say hello. Hey, Connor. This is my hey, seven-year-old. Connor. You want to shake hands, please? Their kids occasionally came in and out of the room as we talked. They have four children. Ed Forey, Bill's father, was there as well. So was a guy who I think may have been Bill Forey's brother. I'm not entirely sure. He was wearing a, a cool Hartford Whalers baseball cap. We talked about a whole bunch of stuff. To my mind, the most interesting subject we got into was race how it's lived in Boston right now, how it's lived in the United States, how the Forries, as the parents of four biracial children, talk about race with them. But we started off talking about whether when the Forries first got together back at Boston College, they had any inkling that they were going to become a Boston power couple. No, not at all. I had no... No inkling that Linda would go into politics. Yep, I had none either. I, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I, I was pretty sure I'd go into newspapers because that was my family's business. Mm-hmm. But when I first met Linda, she was interested in like business and, yeah. and fashion design. Fashion. That was her. <laughs> that was her thinking. But you know, mm-hmm. I, I could see obviously once I got to know and see Linda, you know, in action in, in a public way when when she worked for Charlotte Ritchie, that you know she obviously had a gift in terms of relating to people, and so. I could see it coming once we were married, but not when we were dating. Yeah, definitely not when we were dating at all. I mean, I never thought I would run for office. And so, as Bill mentioned, working for Charlotte, you know, I was in the Carroll School of Management at BC, and so when I came and worked for Charlotte as an aide, you know, I still did not think I would run, right? It was opportunities that presented itself, but it was really about helping communities. People who know Linda's parents understand that that's really the genesis of her skills. She's She's the perfect blend of both of her parents her dad is this like genial jovial wonderful person who just got this great personality Mm kind of outsized personality always smiling and that's one half of linda and the other half is her mom who's also very genuine and and warm person but is also a very smart she sees three steps ahead on everything and that's you know she kind of runs the family but she's she's just she's the political mind you know it's amazing and i would say that it was just in them um, that they were not political back in Haiti. Um, 
my father was a well-known tailor in Haiti, but still was not a, po a political person. But yeah, it's but, in them, though, right? In terms of but every every almost every Haitian person I know is a is like a part-time politician in that's a way. True. You know, they all <laughs> take. You know, that's like like here in Boston. It's kind of a it's kind of a, a pastime. It's it's what you talk about around the table for better or for worse. But Linda's mom's gift is that she's she's very discerning about people. She understands that political eye and that political instinct that she'll call Linda on the phone sometimes and say, hey, Linda, do you think about calling this person? Exactly. Or, Linda, I saw this on TV. You should look into this. Like but Haitian she's, radio. She's my ears on yeah. Haitian radio and yeah. Haitian yeah. television. Oh, yes. And she's like, okay, let's, um, let's decide. You need to make a call right now. Call in the show. Say Merry yeah. Christmas. Do what you... Yeah. She's very good. This is sort of a natural setup for one of the things I really wanted to ask you two about, which is... You both have important roles in complementary fields, in politics and in, in media. And I'm wondering how you negotiate those two roles, how much you bring them together, how much you work to keep them separate. Because, Linda, I can, you know, you could, if you wanted, come home and say to Bill, hey, you won't believe the stuff that Stan Rosenberg's partner has been tweeting out lately. And, Bill, conversely, you know, you could, in theory, cover a certain story in a certain way because you know that it's a, a topic of interest to your wife. How do you guys keep your roles discreet and when might they sort of uh, blend into each other a little bit? Okay, I would say that, you know, we're both in serious professions, right? And so we take it seriously. Um, and I would say that in terms of the reporter, um, the work that Bill does, um, I don't get much love in the paper, right? I don't get much ink. And I'm like, hello, hello, I'm here. I know I'm your wife, but I'm a senator. I'm doing great work too. Can I get some ink? So I just want people <laughs> to know that, that, you know, they've really done a great job in keeping it separate. And, you know, even though we may share some things, I mean, they're off the record, um, but I'm, I'm very lucky, really very lucky to have someone like Bill, um, who I can bounce some ideas off of, 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 in terms of some of the things that I'm working on. I have a great team in the office, but in terms of some of my policies and issues, it's great to have someone that you can just talk things out with. Yeah. I mean, you, you use the word negotiate and it just doesn't happen. Like we don't yeah. have those conversations where we're like, yeah. okay, you do this and I'll do that. I mean, it's just kind of understood. Yeah. I think after 10 years, especially, but even at the beginning of her, her political career, it was just kind of understood that, look, I, I have to do my job. Yeah. I have to stay in my lane. You have to stay in yours. And when they end up crossing, that's a problem. If we start coordinating okay, this story's coming, I won't, I won't write about it until this happens. I mean, it's just, I approach Linda's role the way I would any other public official that I'm friendly with, which is that I may yeah, know yeah. certain things and she may say certain things to me off the record and they have to stay off the record. And I just kind of pretend like I didn't hear it. I try to remain independent in what I do too and not tell her stuff until maybe until she reads it paper. in the paper if she happens to read that oh come on edition. honey really no, I read on. it have you Stop. read this week's Stop. edition yes I did what, what's on okay. the cover what do you mean on the cover on the cover is the boxer okay good okay did you come read on. it yeah I did read it it's very good you all, all right. should read it by the way you guys, I remember, hired a, an ombudsman, right, to yes. cover your coverage or analyze your coverage of Linda's run for state rep when yes. she replaced, ended up replacing Tom Finneran. Right. We, we hired an ombudsman on two occasions. We, ha we hired an ombudsman in 2004 and 2005. I always say it wrong. I always say <laughs> ombudsman. I don't know why I should be able to get it right. Which is a reader's advocate, somebody who just, you know, can answer questions that we, you know, about our coverage independently. So the person usually is not in the newsroom 
he or she is working independently but has a number, has an email that people can access and we publish. And uh, and then we hired an ombudsman, Michael Jonas, actually from Commonwealth Magazine, to cover the last big election when Linda was running for state senate in the special in 2013. So we've done it twice. We don't we don't keep an ombudsman on staff because it's just too much and yeah. it's really not necessary. But we have to put other measures in place all the time because this is not like a one-off problem. I mean, this is an everyday ethical newsroom question about how do you cover somebody you're related to. Can you talk a little about what sort of measures you mean? Well, what I mean basically is by ha- about it's about having good staff, people who care about what we do and who care about their own reputation enough not to bend the rules. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we, we're hiring usually young journalists right out of college or, or, or J school. You know, I have that sense of responsibility that this is a young person starting a career which doesn't want to start with a chapter about them um, doing a favor for their boss to make their their wife look good or something. And I think there is that um, casualty for Linda. Sometimes we're too circumspect about our coverage. We're too, there's too much of a fine point put on, let's avoid the Linda issue. You know, so she's she does get left out of stories once in a while, but that's, that's not, where that funny, honey. That's not funny. Like I do a lot of work. I just like, hey guys, I do a lot of work. I, I want know, you to know that. You know, no, so but we'll do better. I know that, but we will do better too in terms of internally doing our press releases and really build a stronger relationships. Obviously, this has been a year in which there's been, in particular in recent months, a lot of discussion about the state of race in America, race vis-a-vis law enforcement, race relations in general. And I'm wondering, for you guys, how being a interracial couple in Boston has changed in the years since you first met and became a couple. Hmm. What was well, it first met, like? I don't remember. I, don't, well, I mean, I would it's say been... that it was like 1996 is when we first date, started dating. Yeah. And, um, you know, it didn't matter to me what the outside world was saying, right? So I never was approached. Um, that's never happened to me where someone would come and say something negative because I was dating a white guy. Um, that never happened. And even if they did, if they weren't my family, if they weren't paying my bills, then who are you? I mean, I think we, we both benefited because we, we, we grew up in Dorchester yeah. and like you, you come from a diverse community to begin with and your friends and your peers are from all different backgrounds. Absolutely. And so you don't come to the, you don't come to the dating situation with those hangups, at least, you know, not as maybe as severe as other people who are just coming to it, maybe from a, a homogenous community where there's just no black folks or white folks or what have yeah. you. I mean, we came from a setting where we went to school with I went to school with Haitian kids. My BC best High, friends right? were, BC, I, I went to BC went to High, but I went to St. Gregory's Elementary School here yeah. right up the street. By the time I graduated in eighth grade, it was a mixture of Haitian, Irish, Vietnamese. That was my, my set of friends. So it wasn't like, you know, it was, it was very natural for me and Linda to be together in our world. It would have been more of a departure for me to, you know, to date somebody from Newton in a way, you know what I mean? Or from, from Connecticut, like that would have been a culture shock for me and, and for my family. My parents grew up with a household of Haitian American kids running around who are my friends. 
So having a Haitian woman come to dinner was exactly what they expected, you know. <laughs> In terms of Boston, we never encountered any never. overt hostility from anybody in in our even back in the 90s i think the city had already changed in terms of its climate by the time we came around we were lucky like if even five years earlier it would have been different for us Mm -hmm. i think having grown up in that post-busing era where frankly we were more insulated Mm -hmm. our our parents took steps to make sure we were by sending us to to parochial parochial schools schools, yeah i went to st kevin's bill went to st gregory's yeah and i think for for those of us who grew up we were, we were fortunate to grow up in that period rather than five years earlier when it just wasn't, it wasn't possible. Yeah. yeah, absolutely right. You guys know that, that Mayor Walsh has uh, gotten some grant funding to do this conversation about Boston and race in the city. I think it's a, a, technically a resiliency it's grant. Resiliency. You've got your vantage point. Do you think it's important for the city as a whole to have a sort of a public open conversation about these issues? Yeah. Okay. I, I will say um, really quick that conversation is fine, but it's also action, right? It's 2014. We know there are things we can be doing now. Is how do we help move people out of poverty? How do we train people for jobs of today? And so I, I do think it is important to have the conversation as well, but there are things we can be doing immediately um, that could really change some outcomes in, in some families and communities in the city. Yeah, I mean, I usually, when people say Let, we need to have a conversation about race, what they really mean is let's, I don't want to talk about this anymore. They, let's talk about something else. And it's, it's usually a BS cop-out thing to say. When it's even brought up as, you know, I, I just get, I'm a little jaded about the idea of having a conversation because we've been talking about this. You know what I mean? People who live here and been living it. It's time for us to, like like Linda said, take some action steps. And the obvious piece is, you know, the justice system has to change so that there's accountability Absolutely. on both sides of, of, of the law. I, I do feel like Boston could could have a similar problem to New York or Ferguson even. I mean, I know the police here have done a better job and, are, are you know, I think are better equipped to work with the community the way they should. And, and Boston has good leadership. But, you know, to think that this can't happen here is, you know, Pollyannish to me. Absolutely. And I'll I'll say really quick that, you know, our police have done a good job, I think, in terms of Commissioner Evans and his leadership team and and some of the captains that we have in in these communities, Captain of B3, Captain Hussein, and before him, the other captains in Mattapan, Dorchester, you know, C11, they're doing great because they're connecting with the communities, right? We talk about community policing. They know the young people in the communities. They know the seniors because at these community meetings, the police do show up and try to be connected. And the other piece is that, you know, the protest that's happening around the country, I don't look at it as anti-police. You know, it's pro-justice because what's happened around in terms of the rulings with these grand juries have been unacceptable because bottom line, there should be a trial. Let's put everything on the table so everyone could understand, you know, what happened. This is a teachable moment when people get shot you know, without having a weapon and so forth. It's unacceptable. And we can't just say, all right, you know, it's just a black man or a black kid. I mean, that's horrible. Here we are. We have four children. Two of them are black boys. I mean, what are we talking about here? Well, you know, about to talk. But, I mean, yeah, I've already Bill, talked to yeah. John about the fact that, look, I mean, he's 11. He's you know, in an, another year or two, he's going to be viewed as a threat by some people. I mean, any teenager will be. Yeah. But for a kid growing up in the city yeah. who's of color, they have to be particularly aware that if they have an encounter, it can go south really fast. And 
in, unfortunately, in too many cases, uh, uh, everybody has a bad day, but you know it shouldn't cost you your life. If you make a bad decision and you're a, a, a teenager of color, you know it can be a, a, a bad encounter can turn deadly. And so we have to counsel our children that unfortunately they have to take you know measures that maybe other children wouldn't, mm-hmm. and they have to just be a little bit more careful. When you tell them that they're going to need to take measures that other kids won't, what do you tell them they're going to need to do, or what counsel do you give them? Yeah, you know, I didn't say anything specific yet. I think as he gets a little bit older, I'll have to give, I'll have to be a little bit more specific. I don't know because I just know when I was growing up and I would move around with with my friends who were Haitian or black, that's when inevitably I would have an encounter with the police. And whether I was driving or walking, or I would see how other people would react to my friends, and they would they would throw up a guard, or they would look look twice, or across the street, or whatever it would be. I'm just aware that that's what's hap- that's mm-hmm. what happens, and that's going to happen to our kids at some point soon, and especially our boys. And they already know, you know, because they 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 can feel it and they understand what happens, but. They need to know about the, the danger part of it, which is that if you do have an encounter with, with the police officer or, or anybody in authority, you're going to have to defer. You're going to have to not, you know, please just let's not have an encounter that's going to turn into a, into a confrontation. You know, we can, live to, we can live to argue this another day. So I, I'm still trying to figure it out, Adam. Like, how, how do I explain this? Because it's absurd to me, but it's reality. And but it is absurd, right? Because the thing is that, you know, we do have good police officers. So not every yeah, police not trying, officer does that, that, right? I'm not trying to and say so, that. And so, yeah, I know that. But, I mean, I think it's important because we want folks to talk to the police. I mean, the police are there to help and protect us. And I say that, yeah, there are rogue cops. And, yeah, if you're a rogue cop, you got to get off the street. You know what I mean? And and if you know who they are as, you know, the police commissioner and all that, then take them off the street. But bottom line is that, you know what, we have a relationship with our police officers. This is the only way we're going to be able to stop like the triple shooting that happened in Dorchester, you know, on Bowdoin Street. This is the only way we're going to be able to really try to figure out how do we crack down on the guns and everything that's taking place in our neighborhoods. So Linda, how do you talk about this stuff with your kids? And is it different from the way you talk about it publicly? Okay, how do I talk about it with my kids? Okay, so my kids are young. I would say in terms of John, John's the oldest, obviously. He just turned 11. But I don't talk about it differently. You know, the conversation is like, for instance, I have good relationships with the police officers. Granted, I'm an elected official, right? So I have mothers who've lost, you know, young sons to gun violence on the streets, okay? So we were, we just had a meeting around possible legislation to look at filing this year with Representative Byron Rushing and also Senator Chang Diaz talking about the stop and frisk um, in terms of really ticketing on the streets, if you stop someone, you know, do we give tickets and so forth. And and one of the things, I had some mothers come, you know, and, and one of the mothers came and said, well, wait a minute, you know, my son was shot. And so for me, she was kind of in a dilemma because she's like, you know what, because if there's a shooting that took place and, you know, one of the people who did the shooting came back around the area where her son was shot, but they did not stop him and frisk him. And she said that, but if they did, they would have caught him that day. 
and so it was really an interesting dynamic so where this the, mom the legislation would would crack down on the use of stop and frisk right no not crack down crack it down, would just mo- nope it's not crack down this possible this legislation that's being talked about it's more if someone stopped on the street you know to just be spoken to they would get a ticket like, why were you stopped? You know, maybe there was an incident up the street. You know, maybe there was a description. Someone had, like, a black hoodie with black pants. So you making, the creating a record, creating making a it record. less subjective. Okay. That's what it would be. It would be creating a record. Um, another thing that was possibly talked about, and I know Mayor Walsh has talked about this a little bit because President Obama's thinking about this, the cameras for police officers. Um, and then the other piece is the data collection, right? Because we could collect all this data, but if it just sits there, what's the point? But it was great just having the initial conversation um, to really hear different perspectives. Um, but for me, yeah, I don't talk about it differently because this is real, you know. What are you thinking? I'm happy to hear there's something in the works on it because I do think there needs to be a record so that the public understands, you know, when we are making, um, you know, threshold stops or, you know, uh, for information only FIOs that the police do on the, on the corners. And I've done ride-alongs with police and, and seen them do it. And I think it's important. I mean, we, we do want for quality of life in the neighborhoods – we want our police to be proactive. We want them to have dialogue with people on the street, make sure that the stuff that's going on is, is not impacting neighbors negatively. But we also, you know, people need to have an understanding that when they are stopped, there's a reason behind it mm-hmm. beyond the fact that they're just a person of color walking down the street mm-hmm. or what have you. So having that record, it seems to me, is a, is a good idea. And, you know, I guess I'll look forward to reading the legislation once you guys finish it. <laughs> no, we'll, we'll put out something. But um, it is, it is a, I think it is a good idea. And the thing is that, you know, Police Commissioner Evans and, and the BPD have been, you know, on point in terms of sharing the data. You know, Commissioner Evans has done a great job, I have to say that, in terms of really listening and, and tackling the issues and in terms of the, the rallies that took place here. You know, there were no incidents really here in Boston because of the work that Commissioner Evans did and meeting with us as electeds. We're like, listen, don't arrest people. Don't come out with military gear. He got it. He's like, nope, won't do it. Yeah. There's a point to this, which is that people can't sit idly by and watch justice just go unmet in these instances where it's very obvious to everybody that there should have been some kind of uh, measures taken to bring people to justice. Mm-hmm. That noise from your daughter, I'm going to take as a reminder that you have a family that you should be paying attention to. Guys, thank you both. Thank you. Thank you for coming. We appreciate it. You Nora, say bye, Nora. You, you say bye-bye. Us. Bye-bye. <laughs> That was State Senator Linda Dorsina Forey and her husband Bill Forey talking with me at their home in Dorchester the Saturday after Christmas. If you like what you hear from the Scrum, please subscribe to it in iTunes and leave us a review. As always, we've got links to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and past episodes of the Scrum on our website, wgbhnews.org scrum. The Scrum team includes WGBHnews.org senior editor Peter Kadzis and WGBH political analyst David Bernstein. Our producer is Abby Ruzica. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. Have fun.